welcome to the Living Room Podcast. I'm your host, a disembodied voice that you may call Neil. Spaces are all around us. The places we work, the houses we live in, even transportation. They're the medium by which we reduce the irreducible void. Welcome to the Living Room, where we will explore the topic of spaces and how the human mind comes to terms with them. Go ahead and take a seat. The room doesn't seem to mind. Before we start this podcast, I must explain something vital. By referring to space in this podcast, I don't refer to the purely physical element of a blank spot surrounded by an envelope of material. When we really break down the concept of a space, we tend to settle on the room as a useful example. Yes, the room is a space, and a room is a physical element. Therefore, spaces are easily definable, physical, tangible things. Wrong. The problem with this is that the idea of a room is an impossible abstraction. We tend to define it, as Google does, as a part or division of a building enclosed by walls, floor, and ceiling. But where, then, does the door fit in? What about windows? When open, these break that membrane of division. Given that logic, can we consider the entire interior of a building a room? What about the door of that building? Does that single room encompass a street? A city? The atmosphere of Earth? If so, then surely all of reality? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. We recognize, then, that a room cannot be purely physical. Rooms and thus spaces are human concepts. When I refer to space, I refer to the human conception of environment and division of that environment. As humans, we view existence through a hazy lens. We see things only as a human would see them. We are incapable of doing otherwise. Each of our individual lenses are informed by our biology, personal experience, and surrounding culture. As a mental construction of ours, spaces take these characteristics as well. So, when I describe a space in human terms, this is not because I intend to personify inanimate objects. It's because, when broken down, a space is inherently human. Right. Onto the podcast. One of the most identifiable spaces most people are familiar with is the living room. It's the center of life in the home, the place to entertain guests. When you picture yourself curling up with a book or the next Netflix obsession, it's the living room that springs to mind. During the holiday season, it's usually the center of festivities. In older homes, the living room is the center of warmth and energy, being home to the fireplace. It's easy to think of the living room as a constant. I certainly depict it mentally as unchangeable, in a way. Everyone has their version of a living room, but they all tend to serve the same functions, hold the same kinds of furniture, old or new. It may come as a bit of of a surprise to learn that it wasn't always this way. 
Throughout much of history, there was no such thing as a living room. The majority of humans, barring the most extravagant, lived in homes of only one or a handful of rooms. Even if there was a distinction made between bedrooms and elsewhere, the remaining space was shared between kitchen, dining room, and other tasks. There also wasn't much of an opportunity to relax in the home like there is now. The living room is largely a modern concept evolving from several older origins. Early depictions of what we would consider living rooms came under many different names. One of these most people have heard at one time or another is the parlor. Dropping into etymology as the Merriam-Webster website happily provides, we can follow the shift in meaning from the very beginnings of the word to the modern terminology of the living room. Interestingly enough, the origin of the parlor has nothing to do with homes or ice cream shops, instead owing itself to a peculiar order of French monks in the Middle Ages. As the story goes, an order of monks in medieval France took an oath of silence. They would not say a word within the confines of their monasteries besides within a certain room. This room would be called an excuse my horrible French, a parleur, which derived from the French word parler, meaning to speak. This verb is also where we get the verb parler in English. Fast forward a few centuries, and English speakers have borrowed and modified this word, changing the pronunciation to parleur and eventually parlor. The meaning was extended to mean any room in which talking in private came easily, such as a chamber to the side of a main hall in a manor house. In England, it became the best furnished room in middle-class houses, meant to entertain guests in style. Still, the parlor was fairly rare, and for a long time people didn't really settle on a specific name for it. It was called by different people the drawing room, or the sitting room, or any other term people cooked up over the centuries. An article from the BBC fills us in on some of the roots of parlor or living room design. Our story starts again in France, with King Louis XV, finding the etiquette and formality of the palace too stifling, he began to adapt a series of rooms to match a more relaxed, informal mood. Starting with several renowned architects, this distinction between formal and informal rooms began to trickle down through the populace. Comfort began to become an obsession across Europe for the aristocracy. Sofas, ornate chairs, and small tables for card games crept their way into the homes of the elite. This isn't to say that these were new inventions, merely that they experienced a rise in popularity among the nobility. Over the centuries, as the Industrial Revolution marched onwards, the idea of a room built for comfort and leisure took hold. Finally, technology began to enter the scene. A 2019 Insider article titled How the American Living Room Has Evolved allows us to understand this metamorphosis. In the 1930s and 40s, radio was king. 
Being based on sound and not on sight, the living room was occupied primarily by armchairs and coffee tables, strewn almost haphazardly in listening distance. There were no couches yet. The purpose of the living room had not yet consolidated either. Depending on taste, the living room could either be where the entire family sat and relaxed together informally, or it could be a more formal affair, similar in purpose to the parlors and French salons of Louis XV. As we entered into the 1950s and 60s, television began to phase out the radio as the primary source of home entertainment. Televisions were far smaller, far more distorted, and far quieter than the ones of today, however, meaning it was advantageous to stay close to the screen. The armchairs of old now gathered around the TV only a few feet away. Couches were still not a home staple like they are today. Moving into the later parts of the century and into our own, TVs became larger, floor plans more open, and living rooms more spacious. Couches arrived on the scene, allowing people to sit up or lay down as they please. Open floor plans have created large, sweeping spaces that once again combine kitchen, dining room, and living room into one. It's interesting to see the same kinds of patterns emerge and reemerge as civilization changes. Our spaces change alongside us. The living room, an element of the house so irremovable from the concept of the home, has only really been around for perhaps 100 years, and in a different form to what we're used to. Spaces change as culture changes, but buildings, quite literally set in stone, oftentimes can't keep the same pace. So we change them to fit. For many different reasons, buildings throughout the past and present have been repurposed for actions they were not intended for at construction. This is known as adaptive reuse. Archetizer.com lists many examples of repurposed buildings around the world. A coal-burning power plant was transformed into an event space for local college students in Amherst, Massachusetts. Architects created a modern apartment complex from the bones of a mill in Graz, Austria. And finally, an old section of Industrial Railroad Line in New York City was converted into a public walkway. You can walk along the original rails embedded in the flooring. The uses of these buildings in the modern day have changed, but the original structures remain. You can see it in the shapes of rooms, the way the original timber beams jut across the central courtyard of the Austrian mill like ribs. Still, it isn't perfect. Many parts of repurposed buildings are awkward. It's like stripping the engine, wheels, and seats out of a school bus to use as a house. It's not very good at being a house and far worse at being a bus. If we have the technology and resources to create new development, shouldn't we do so? We have no reason to keep the strip bus when we can easily build a trailer home. Our buildings should always follow our present needs. Right? I'm not too sure.
If we view the present needs of humanity as the only thing that matters, we lose something. One of the most remarkable things about human beings is our incredible memory. Our memory serves us beyond knowing which berries will kill us. It allows us to recall non-survival experiences with stunning accuracy and over a very long period of time. The best part of our memory is that it can go on after we die. We use art and architecture to leave marks on the world that become history to future generations. While our spaces change over time, our buildings don't always need to match. While they might not always be as useful as new buildings, older buildings serve as standing reminders of the history and collective memory of a place and people. Plus, there are many benefits to adaptive reuse. According to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, older buildings have intrinsic value in their effectiveness. Buildings that survive the test of time are far more likely to continue to survive through the future, especially when given a little bit of love. Many are built with thick brick walls and sturdy hardwoods from old-growth forests that no longer exist in large quantities. And unless there are serious foundation problems, old buildings tend to withstand greater stress and damage from storms and other issues. Reuse also encourages the growth of small businesses that don't want to foot the bill of constructing brand new locations. The most nebulous benefit of adaptive reuse is the innate pride and warmth associated with older buildings. It's up to us how we define and use the spaces inside them, but older buildings tend to lend a certain reassuring quality that is so hard to reflect and create artificially. It's true that it might not be the best for the job, but the gutted, refurbished bus is certainly unique. Our spaces change with us, as everything does in the inevitable march of time. It's up to us to decide how we respond to it. Do we smash and ruin and rebuild anew in the rubble? Or do we remember, reconcile, and reuse? This has been the Living Room Podcast. I'm your host, a disembodied voice trapped within the gut of a large beast. I'll talk to you after the swallow. Thanks for coming.